Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway and Sons and at listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is the classical pianist Natasha Perimsky, whose recent release on the Steinway and Sons label pairs Mazorsky's Pictures at an Exhibition with a work written expressly for her by Fred Hirsch, Variations on a Theme by Tchaikovsky. Perimsky spoke to me at Steinway Hall in New York City, hours before she performed the same program in the Steinway Recital Hall. Natasha, here we are. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks. Thanks for talking to me today. Yeah, this evening. We're here at We're here at Steinway Hall. You are about to perform a recital of Mussorgsky's Pictures in an Exhibition and Fred Hirsch's Variations on a Theme by Tchaikovsky. Mm-hmm. So why don't we start with pictures? This is what we call in classical music repertoire a warhorse. This is a piece that what's great about it, I think, is that there are so many ways in to it as a piece that has survived the test of time. It's also a piece that, to me, feels completely modern every time I hear it. I feel like it could have been written last week. What say you, Natasha Premsky? Yeah, I would agree. First of all, it's a warhorse, not just for a piano recital. It's indeed also a warhorse for orchestra and, and symphonic performances. And of course, all my orchestral friends and my conductor friends always make fun of the fact that, you know, oh, you're playing the piano version. <laughs> Although, of course, the initial concept was solo piano and it was Ravel's orchestration that put it into the concert hall. And yes, I agree. I think that the, the modernism comes from the harmony uh, because the harmony is so ahead of its time and so dissonant in places and always to evoke imagery. And yet at the same time, I I would say it's also very ancient in the sense that you can tell, even if when you look at Mussorgsky's body of work, Havanshina, the great gates at the end of pictures, which were the great Bogater gates. And Bogaters were these knights that are that come from ancient Russia. And then you have the old castle and you have Baba Yaga, which stems back from ancient fairy tales. And Limoges is more like a, a nod to the Russo-Francophilia at the time, that kind of mutual love between countries. Odd they patched it up after <laughs> the French invaded Russia, but hey, we're not going to turn good wine away. No. So yes, and the gnome also comes from old fairy tales and things like that. So I think it's at once modern and at once kind of timeless, timeless, but from an older time, you know, ancient kind of primordial. I hate that word. I was, it was at the tip of my tongue, but I didn't go there. (laughs) You did. Good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, but, but but I hear what you're saying. It's not archaic because it's still a very living, breathing Mm -hmm. language that, that he, he builds in this, in this work. Yeah, absolutely. You've recorded this for the Steinway & Sons label, and when I heard your interpretation, I listened to it yesterday, I really love how pianistic it is. Mm-hmm. And when I was speaking to uh, Steinway artist Paul Lewis about this piece, he said he makes a point of when he's playing it, he's almost thinking of every instrument except the piano. 
So in a way, he's he's sort of pre-imagining Ravel's orchestration. But I really loved the pianism that you brought to this piece. Certainly, this is a piece that's lived with you for a long time before you 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 put it uh, on record. What was the approach that you brought to to taking on this great warhorse pictures at an exhibition? Well, frankly, I took it on because I was 13 and obnoxious. So I just really wanted to play it because I, I wanted to prove something at piano competitions. And of course, I was really inspired by the performance of Sviatoslav Richter. And I did not hear the Ravel version until actually really late in the game. It's blasphemous, but I'll just go there anyway. There are a lot of things I just don't agree with in the orchestration at all. I think the brass are largely overused, and they are especially the beginning, which is in, in the Russian style, literally the translation, Nel Modo Rusiko, those are the instructions. It's not very Russian. To me, actually, I see it as one person standing alone in a field, surrounded by peasants, and he's the soloist, and he's answered by a choir of peasants. And so I don't agree with the even the opening. And I don't necessarily agree with the orchestration of uh, Samuel Goldberg and Schmuel. So I never drew upon Ravel's orchestration. It never fulfilled me on any level. And I think that the beauty of the piano version is actually the fact that it, it leaves more to the imagination of the listener to think about the imagery and all the kind of gossamer things that an orchestra, I don't think, can actually achieve. And also time, the ability to be flexible with time when you're alone mm -hmm. and autonomous. You're not able to do that when you're controlling 80 plus people. Right. Roboto, roboto at the keyboard is a different thing from a conductor leading an orchestra, certainly. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you insist that this is a piece that was conceived on a smaller scale and, and functions better. See, that's the thing I disagree with as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think that... <laughs> I've never been accused of not playing this piece loud enough. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. In fact, there are some venues where I've really felt incredibly uncomfortable playing this piece because it is on such a large scale. I felt like I'm either... Tiptoeing around, blast people like, out of their seats. yeah, and I've 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 also had people come up to me when they've heard me rehearse it at smaller venues, and some actually that are even let's just say they're the acoustics here were in the Steinway um, recital hall. You know, they're they're a lot more conducive to this type of piece because just the way the acoustics work. But I recently played it in a hall that actually sat 500 people. But it was honestly like total audio fatigue mm -hmm. and I had to like scale everything back. So I think this is totally large scale on the piano, depending on whose hands it is. And, <laughs> and it, it draws upon the pianos from, from Pianissimo too. Yeah, like the Blazing. barely there in the dead with the dead in the dead language, then with all the power of the Bogotir Gates and Baba Yuga that precedes it. So yeah, I I think it's probably one of the largest scale works for piano. As a Russian-born American, do you feel a special tie to this music? Or do you feel that, you know, no matter where you're from, there's a way in? I think no matter where you're from, there's a way in. But certainly when you grow up with Baba Yaga fairy tales, it is a little different because it's just built into your psyche at such a young age. That's probably one of the things I love so much about this particular piece 
that people who are not so familiar with Russian culture and as I'm learning are a lot and certainly with Russian history actually get a foray into maybe some things that are really important to Russians in their culture like the kind of mel- the melodies are very folksy like the all the promenades very folk style writing and Baba Yaga if people are curious to read about her enter an entire world of Russian folklore and the Bogatyr gates if they read about the history of it how that particular painting by Hartman was conceived was he was actually entering an architectural competition for uh Tsar Alexander II there was just an assassination attempt that he survived and to celebrate they wanted to build these great gates and Hartman's submission was the Bogatyr style of ancient Russian architecture when you start reading about that who are the Bogatyrs it kind of like it's it opens a door into what is probably a fairly unknown world. You mentioned the promenades. The promenade is a theme that recurs in this piece between pictures and the exhibition as you're ostensibly walking from one to the next. When you're performing, how do the promenades change? How does the context change for them? And and what do you what do you do consciously to give different takes on each promenade? You know, the first one, obviously, it's almost like a fanfare, which I guess is probably why Ravel chose the brass. But um, <laughs> we don't have to re- let Ravel off the hook. I it's think okay. this entire podcast is just going to be like shaming Ravel for his orchestration. That's my goal. And I will even tie it to the Hirsch. You'll see. Nice. We'll um, with a callback. So look and forward even to that. there, <laughs> Ravel was wrong. Yeah, no, it starts off, obviously, as a fanfare, you know, arrival, everything's great. definitely very vastly and sometimes they're really in contrast to the picture that preceded and one of them that I think is arguably the most interesting promenade that sheds a light on the semantics of the picture that precedes it is the promenade after Bidla. Bidla is it is a Russian word it means cattle and is depicted as such in the Hartman sketch but it also means a horde of people who are just blindly following an idea, 
who have stopped thinking for themselves. You say, like, budla is like, you can walk down the street and swear at people, say, oh, you're such budla, like, you're just, you're not thinking for yourself, you're just, oh, they told me to do this, budla. So, after, the promenade after budla is actually incredibly sad and disappointed, which is why I think that's the kind of subcontext to that particular picture, and that's, that's Musurski's, I think, nod to the secondary translation. The kind of more colloquial translation is kind of like, man, people suck, you know? And of course, then there's the promenade tied into a picture, which is speaking with a dead and a dead language, which is the promenade theme, but it's in this ethereal world. So he's like walking amongst the spirits. That's a gorgeous moment. Yeah. What's the biggest challenge when you're trying to bring this off uh, live or frankly on record Mm -hmm. when you're trying to show the through line (laughs) of pictures in an exhibition? What is it that is most challenging about that? Uh, Not playing too loud. (laughs) To be honest, a lot of the time. Unpack that idea for me. Um, Yeah. Again, going circling back to what I said before, sometimes you can kind of get away, get, get uh, carried away yourself with um, volume that you can create because of Mussorgsky's writing. You know, one of the challenges is probably, you know, I've been lucky enough that I, every audience I've played this for is fairly familiar with the piece because of its exposure, so I don't have to sell it to them in any way. But, you know, it's just storytelling. It's, it's pure storytelling in a way that's even more, well, actually is totally programmatic. So that's probably 
one of the challenges, and probably more so that's a challenge in recording because you're not playing for a live audience, so you don't have anything to, you don't have any feedback, as it were, which don't ask me to explain what feedback is from an audience because, you know, they're sitting there quietly, you know, trying not to make any noise. And what does that mean to have feedback? But you feel the energy of a room. I have definitely played pieces before where I can tell people are just either not into the piece or I'm not telling it well or, you know, I feel off and they're picking up on it. Like, you that just, you just is, know is the electricity is there. When you're performing. Yeah, when yeah. you're a performer, you definitely it's really easy to tap into that. So I think it's probably a bigger challenge in recording, as it were. And it was really hard as I was recording in a in an empty hall <laughs> to have the drama and the... You know, one of the things that you work with in this piece are the silences, especially potent in something like the gnome. And it's really hard to milk a silence and know exactly when to go on when there's no one sitting there that you can tell us holding their breath or anything you're just kind of guesstimating and in fact I had to re-record the the gnome well in the session of course about three times to get the right timing that I heard on recording
you've been living with this piece since you were 13. Mm-hmm. How has your relationship with it changed and evolved over the decades? Oh, big time. I think at first, to be honest, I was really just struggling with the technical elements. And not to say that Baba Yaga is still kind of annoying. <laughs> but uh, definitely the initial hurdle were, you know, Limoges and Tuileries and that nasty little passage at the end of Nome and Baba Yaga for obvious reasons. And to be perfectly honest, it was only six months ago that I finally came up with the right fingering for that nasty little passage in the end of Gnome. And I was so excited that I actually, I was teaching someone who was performing it recently and I, you know, passed along that fingering to them. And interestingly, it didn't really work for them. So everybody's hands are different. But again, like there are pieces still to this day that I've played for 20 plus years that I'm like, why did I do this for 20 years? I did this to myself. There is another passage that will remain nameless that I recently discovered a really good hack for. And I just thought, man, I've been struggling and struggling and struggling. And really, all I had to do was this, you know, put this in this hand and rearrange some things. And voila, it fits perfectly. You know, circling back to the pianistic comment, this is not written very well pianistically. There are a lot of areas in this piece where, I mean, he was a pianist, though. He played, but he was never sober when he played it. So we don't know <laughs> what he played. Fingers. But, yeah. but you, you put your finger on something, which is at the piano, as a pianist, once you surmount those technical hurdles, once artistry can occupy yeah. 100% of your focus, yeah, that's just such an epiphany. Well, then you're free, for- yeah. And then, you know, and then my, well, first of all, my definition of virtuosity is not just being able to play loud and fast. It's being able to play soft and slow and everywhere in between and to have the full gamut of colors at your disposal with a flip of a switch. That is true virtuosity. That is what Russian virtuosity is. And that is what I have strived for my whole life. If you don't have paintbrushes and you don't have you know acrylic paint and watercolor when you need it, And pencil, when you need it, you're really just working with an extremely limited set of tools and there's only so much you can do. But over the years, as I've tried to expand my colors and my palette and my mediums, I've been able to tap into all of that more every time I come back to this piece. And you tell the story a little differently every time so that even you're interested. Because if the storyteller isn't interested, the audience You'll feel it. definitely won't be interested. You said Russian virtuosity. You made a point mm-hmm. of saying that's what virtuosity is. That's what Russian virtuosity mm-hmm. is. Is there a Russian piano hero for you? Yeah, Sviatoslav Richter. Yeah, well, what, is it, many... what is it about Richter that inspires you? Well, I think that, that his breadth as a musician... He didn't. He wasn't just. Oh, I play Bach, or I play Bach in modern music, or I only play modern music, or I only do Beethoven and maybe a little Chopin, or you know, I'm only a Rachmaninoff pianist. Although he was once accused by a fellow colleague pianist of being a Rachmaninoff pianist, and he was extremely offended by that because he really strived to be everything. He started out as a repetiteur at an opera house playing Wagner operas from score. 
And then he went through a period where he only played the Bachwell tempered clavier, and he finally stopped after he got about a thousand letters in the mail saying, can you please stop torturing us with this nonstop Bach. Like Bach is great, but if you have to sit through both books of the Waldemar Clavier and that's all you hear from a pianist, you, you know, you really might want to hear all these other pieces. I think eventually his fans were like, can we just move on from the Waldemar Clavier period? So yeah. And he, he championed Prokofiev, his contemporaries. He was a great Chopin pianist. He played Beethoven. He played Ravel, I mean, you name it. He played a Debussy. I, I don't know what else. Shostakovich. He played everything, and he played the Bach and the and the Haydn's, and he preferred Haydn to Mozart. But just like the sheer breadth and scope of this man's musicality is unparalleled to this day. I think. Is that something you'd like to do as well? Do you want to be a woman for all seasons? Yeah, I, I definitely don't want to be typecast. Although, let's be honest. 90% of the concertos I play are Russian concertos. And that's fine if that's if that's what people want to hear. I'm not going to beat them over the head with, you know, something they'd rather hear me play something else. So but yes, in general, I aspire to have the kind of breadth that Richter had. Right on. Uh, let's talk about the other work on this album which is Fred Hirsch's Variations on a Theme by Tchaikovsky. I know Hirsch as a jazz cat mm-hmm. and a jazz guy. Yeah. And a man who has recently been through a lot and has come back with a with a second astounding late career and a, a brilliant improviser. And yet, and yet, when I heard this variations on a theme by Tchaikovsky, I was astounded at the idiomatic classical voice that I heard. Fred's greatest gifts is his harmonic vocabulary. And if you've been to his jazz shows, you you know that he's able within one show not just to stick to one style of jazz, but to not only many styles of jazz, but I've heard echoes of Chopin in his in his jazz concerts. So I think he's just really able to tap into so many idioms and he put a little ragtime in the variations and There are some jazzy elements for sure, but yes, there's also Scarlatti, Chopin, Tchaikovsky, Schumann, and really all throughout all of this, I personally can hear Fred's voice. He has a really personal voice, so he's not just kind of copycatting. It really is kind of like he's improvising in the style of. So I think that's probably one of the most fun, colorful things about this piece. That's well said, improvising in the style of. I think that that definitely hits it. Most of the Fred Hirsch piece, Variations on a Theme by Tchaikovsky, was also recorded for the Steinway & Sons Spirio, the world's finest high-resolution player piano. Would you like to tell me a little bit about that experience? Nice. Boom! <laughs> well done. Um, John is actually wiping tears of joy. So... I love recording on the Spirio technology. That's that's the truth, and I'll tell you why. Because you don't have to do a million takes if you miss one note. 
I'll just, I'll start it there. Just pure vanity. It's, it's like someone else's job to go in and like splice the right note, but it does, it does make for an easier recording process. That's for sure. And I think it's pretty neat that you can, you know, if you purchase a Spurio piano, you can hear this enormous catalog of Gershwin and Rachmaninoff and yours truly and, I think I think those are the neat things about it. So yeah, the the Hirsch was actually recorded on Spirio, and then some things I just thought, you know, I think this might actually work a little bit better acoustically for the recording itself. But the whole thing can be heard on Spirio, no problem. If you come to Steinway Hall into the showroom and you want to buy a piano, but you want to hear some stuff as well, feel free to play some Rachmaninoff, play some Gershwin, play some me. <laughs> me and Hirsch. <laughs> Much is available. <laughs> Much is Steinway available. And, and don't forget to buy the album on your way out. It's an interesting pairing. Why did you choose the Hirsch to pair with the Mazursky? A couple of reasons. First of all, I I really wanted to record it because it was written for me. And I had been talking to Fred about recording it for quite a number of years. And it was a project that actually took quite a while to come together because he got extremely sick in the middle of it. As you know, he went into a coma and he only started writing it after he came out of his coma. And then we worked on it together. He sent me a first draft. And then I came back to him and said, how mad would you be if I rewrote some passages and some passage work? And he said, oh, no, go for it. You know, I mean, a, a jazz person, you know, they're not so yeah. tied into it. But yeah. the voicing is so important. <laughs> you know, watch your leading tones. Watch your leading tones, which there's <laughs> nothing wrong with his leading tones. But some of the bravura passages were just really kind of impossible to play the way they were originally written. And in the end, you know, the and some of the fingerings and some of the little tricks I did, like in the last variation before the coda, all those things made it into the score. So that was a really fun thing to do. So I just thought, wow, you know, we spent so much time on this and it's such a beautiful piece and it honors Fred and it honors the Gilmore Foundation who had commissioned it on, I guess, on my behalf because I won the Gilmore Young Artist Award. It was kind of a no-brainer. Like the next solo work that's going onto a solo album is going to be the Fred Hirsch. And then I thought, what should I pair it with? And I decided to pair it with something like extremely popular. You know, something people really know, something they're hearing for the first time and something they probably heard a million times. If it's the Ravel version only, fine. <laughs> um, here, here are the original. And I also thought, perfect, they're both Russian. Fred's a Russian heritage, Tchaikovsky and Mussorgsky. It's kind of perfect. It's well matched. I like the contamination that... <laughs> That happens between the two pieces when you juxtapose them. Yeah. I mean, that's what programming is, right? We, mm -hmm. we, we hear something and it latently affects how we heard what we just heard. And yeah. And vice versa. Yeah, totally. Anyway, great job. Thanks. Uh, looking forward to the performance. Thank you. Spicyba. And, uh... <laughs> Thank you.
You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard tracks from Natasha Peremsky's new release on the Steinway & Sons label, pairing Mazursky's Pictures at an Exhibition, and Fred Hirsch's Variations on a Theme by Tchaikovsky. Visit steinway.com label to learn more or to purchase the album. To learn more about the Steinway Spirio, which in case you missed it, remains the world's finest high-resolution player piano, visit steinway.com Spirio. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening.